Well, hello there and welcome to another uh, episode of GUcast. My name is Declan Murphy, urologist here at uh, Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. And I'm joined as ever by my co-host, uh, Dr. Renu Epen, also a urologist here at Peter Mac. Uh, hello, Renu. Hello, Declan. Great to be back as we continue our uh, COVID-themed podcast series. Indeed. And we're also joined by um, another one of our GU Oncology colleagues here at Peter Mac, uh, Dr. Ben Tran. Uh, ben is a medical oncologist specialising in GU cancers with a particular interest in bladder cancer. So, Ben, you're welcome. Thank you for joining uh, GUcast for the first time. That's fantastic to be here. This is not my first time at a recording studio, Declan. I've recorded an album. We can talk about that later. I believe oh, that. Gee. Are we going to have to put up with shameless plugs in his own self-interest and so on? Ben, it's great to have you. So do you listen to podcasts? We often ask our guests this question about whether they're... You know, I do. Um, I listen to uh, American sports podcasts, so... NBA podcasts, a whole bunch of ESPN podcasts, The Ringer by Bill Simmons, so a few different things like that. Wow. And w- where do you listen to podcasts? Do you do you drive to work or bike to work or I At listen uh, I listen in the car. In the car, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's uh, we've been reading a lot. The reason we started the podcast is partly because we, you know, frustration. We're stuck at home. We can't get to conferences yeah. anymore, and it's a way of reaching out. But also because the rise of podcasting and people are listening a lot. To, you know. And cars have made a big difference, I think. Um, these mirroring apps in new cars that mean you can easily listen to your iPod or your Android phone or whatever. We've seen some tweets of GUcast on, on these uh, car screens. Indeed. So today, uh, as Renu says, we are continuing with our theme uh, about the management of GU cancers during the COVID pandemic. And we've already had some fantastic discussions with our friends in Milan uh, and London in the past week. Uh, that's Alberto Briganti and Ben Chalicum. Uh, discussing prostate cancer and kidney cancer, uh, respectively. Uh, And today we are crossing to the west coast of the United States uh, and we're going to focus our discussions today on uh, bladder cancer. So I'm going to hand over to Renu uh, to uh, introduce our guest. Thanks, Declan. I'm actually uh, super excited to introduce our guest for today. Uh, She is a professor of urology at the University of California in San Francisco, where I did my urology fellowship. Uh, She's a leader in the diagnosis and management of urothelial cancers. Uh, She wears many hats, surgeon, researcher, mentor, good friend, and uh, who can forget mum to two gorgeous little kids. So in other words, she's superwoman. Uh, Dr. Seema Porton, welcome to GUcast. Thank you for having me today. It's it's really nice to join you guys and of course connect. Um, I was looking forward to my trip to Australia this summer in July, which unfortunately yes. is going to have to be tabled until next year. So I'm glad at least I get to be um, seeing you guys and chatting with you guys today. So uh, that's right, Seema was supposed to join us for ANZ up uh, oh, in July yeah. this year, and unfortunately that's been cancelled, but uh, we hope to see her very soon uh, down under. So uh, looking forward to it, Seema. Thank you for joining us today. Thank um, you for having me. Seema, we have been listening with shock um, of, out of, the, for the, of the news that's been coming out of the US and especially in places like New York where in fact a lot of urologists have been deployed as frontline health workers to take care of COVID-affected patients. Can you give us a little rundown on the situation that's happening in San Francisco and in particular, what sort of precautions you're taking at UCSF during this, uh, this crisis? Sure. Um, We have been a little more fortunate than our colleagues and um, our friends over in New York. Um, As of yesterday, there was about 17,000 confirmed COVID cases in California with 426 deaths. In San Francisco specifically, about 620 confirmed cases with nine deaths. And um, we had a shelter in place order that was pretty stringent 
prior to the first death. And we think that has helped us flatten our curve quite a bit. Right. Uh, and so we've been able to avoid some of the, um, the situation in terms of lack of PPE vents and, and those, those type of issues that our colleagues across the country are facing. However, it does not mean that we're not planning for surges as well as for the event that things do start to pick up and our curve starts to increase. Um, and so what we've been mostly doing at UCSF is, is essentially disaster planning. And so that is um, number one, we've been very blessed that our leadership at UCSF has been transparent. There is a website called the single source of truth. On it, you can find literally every statistic possible at UCSF, number of cases where they are, how many are in the ICU, how many are in vents, how many are ambulatory how many people have been tested and what the test positive rate is. It's somewhere around 3% right now, which is kind of um, fairly standard across testing healthcare workers and, and those who are symptomatic. They've rolled out a, a pretty stringent universal mask policy um, as of a week and a half ago, including screening at every entrances. Entrances are separated between patients and uh, staff as well as patients who are coming to the respiratory screening clinic. So those are patients who have signs or symptoms that are concerning for COVID and they have a separate entrance elevator and um, kind of thoroughfare. And so it's really trying to, um, you know, comply with the social distancing uh, policies that have been set out by our city um, and our governor and also keep everyone as safe as possible and trying to still um, take care of patients, particularly those at our cancer center um, with a wide variety of cancers. Uh, we had a pretty robust telehealth platform already. Uh, Annabelle Odisho, uh, one of our um, newer hires in terms of urologic oncologist really had pioneered this in probably the six months prior to the pandemic. And so many of us had already started video visits and had a lot of the um, infrastructure set up to do Zoom visits, have a waiting room in Zoom and those types of things. And so we essentially just ramped up and changed over a, a many of our visits to video visits. It's been great. You can invite residents into the call and you can actually observe them as they interview patients and elicit history and run through scans. So you can actually um, still try to uphold your teaching mission while seeing patients remotely and thus far, it's, that has worked out um, pretty well in terms of some of the things that we're doing at UCSF. Wow, sounds sounds like you guys are already you know well on your way of being prepared before this even hit, and uh, your preparations since then have been very comprehensive. Um, ben, what are your thoughts on? Uh, See, I was just wanting to ask Seema, did you have uh, was were you affected by SARS? Was there some experience there that the city drew upon in responding to COVID nineteen? So um, as part of our uh, global health team, there was some experience with SARS, not so much at UCSF, but from uh, many UCSF physicians serving as leads and heads in, in terms of overall global health. So many people who were on the front lines during different Ebola um, uh, outbreaks uh, with SARS, with MERS, with many of the other um, outbreaks. We just had a grand rounds today from um, one of the leaders during the HIV uh, and AIDS epidemic here in San Francisco. And so I think that there are many people with a lot of expertise who 
we were able to lean on in terms of planning for something like this, as well as reaching out to colleagues who've actually been through it. So many of them knew um, hospital leaders all over the world who had dealt with this to some degree. And so that helped as well. Um, and, and I think that was one of the um, great things that has helped us in terms of figuring out what we can and can't do in terms of patient care and what is safe or not safe. And are you routinely screening your pre-surgery patients before they undergo? So that has not been started at UCSF, mainly because of a swab shortage. Right. Uh, the, the type of swab needed can't have wood, can't have cotton, and we did not have enough of those um, as of yet. There are talks about doing that in terms of um, wide uh, pre-op screening. One of the big concerns of bringing patients to the operating room electively is there have been some pretty concerning reports from our colleagues in, in China regarding patients who are asymptomatic in their incubation period, and then they get intubated. And what is thought is, is that potentially the virus that lives in the uh, nasal oropharynx can get pushed down into the airway. And those patients who were in their incubation period who underwent general anesthesia for elective cases all got COVID pneumonia. 41% of them were in the ICU and 20% died. Wow. And so it's very hard to figure out um, what the true risk is. I mean, when you look around at most of the Bay Area who's been fairly strict at sheltering in place, um, it, it's hard to know what the prevalence of someone having a virus in their oropharynx just hanging out and you happen yeah. to do their elective surgery during that incubation period, but it still, it's, it still makes you nervous. Number one, um, for your patient safety, you're, you're essentially doing the elective surgery, generally cancer surgery, because you're worried something bad will happen in the upcoming months, like a, like a cystectomy who's at the, at the edge of their window. Um, what you aren't hoping for is for someone to pass away within a week from something that maybe would have been preventable if you had been able to pre-op -te pre test yeah. um, or know it beforehand. And yeah. so um, I would say that's a, it's a great worry and I'm hoping that's gonna be in the next thing that UCSF rolls out in terms of uh, safety for patients in the OR. Right now we're having uh, patients strictly shelter in place for two weeks prior to their operation. Yeah. So um, I was wondering, has it, have your medical oncologists adjusted what they're doing in regards to neoadjuvant chemotherapy for muscle invasive bladder cancer at the moment? So we're um, still following guidelines and standard of care from that. It again, it's it's a little bit of a, a numbers game where hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, what is the risk of going to the operating room with knowing this about um, the incubation period and, and general anesthesia, as well as using the protective equipment we have. Um, right now, what we're doing is when patients are put under general anesthesia, our anesthesiologists go in in full gear, including an N95, uh, put the patient to sleep, everybody waits 15 minutes, and then we come into the operating room. Because there is um, some risk with um, smoke, uh, so essentially you need a smoke evacuator or air seal if you're doing something laparoscopically, because um, there is some risk with CO2, many people are wearing N95s in the operating room that we're reusing. And so some of that is not as well-defined and the, I, I would say there's a lot of fear. So how do you balance that from potential immunosuppression with neoadjuvant chemotherapy and, and ending up with, um, with an infection during that time course? 
what is going to be the bigger risk. And I think part of that is just, it changes every day and it changes essentially based on um, what our search planning is based on uh, um, personal protective equipment. And so if it looks like we're running low on supplies, then going straight to the operating room may be less um, attractive, but we, we're still recommending what guidelines and, and what we believe is a standard of care is anybody who can get new adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy, that is what we're recommending. The patients we're operating on for muscle invasive bladder cancer are either at the end of their um, chemotherapy window, meaning they're the ones that were scheduled right at there between six to 12 weeks after chemotherapy um, mark, um, or those who can't have chemotherapy and are largely symptomatic, like a, a lot of patients with large bleeding tumors. That's mostly what I've been doing the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, patients who aren't going to make it through chemotherapy because they keep bleeding down their uh, hemoglobin to five or something equivalent like that. Some of our um, concerns at the moment are patients coming to us with muscle invasive disease where we ordinarily would have given neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We're just not sure where the situation is going to be in three months and if they're going to yeah. be able to have a surgery in three months. So there's been this tension between should we operate now and consider adjuvant chemotherapy because we expect we'll be able to continue to do that uh, even if resources go low. Um, is that, have you had to encounter that sort of discussion, decision-making? We have. We've, ha we've um, had that conversation with patients. And now just like your risk and benefits discussion with new adjuvant chemotherapy versus bladder preservation versus upfront cystectomy with adjuvant has, has COVID pandemic mixed in there. And yeah. in considerations for um, what's happening in someone's life, what's happening in our immediate um, county and situation and, and, and how that may affect how we do decisions. We, we toss it into the decision-making process right now. The, the really nice thing about the video or Zoom visits is I can join in sometimes um, when our medical oncologists are speaking with patients that I've seen, yep. and, and then we can chat about it all together. Um, we've been trying to leverage some of those, that multidisciplinary aspect too, just to chat with the patient. And patients come with their own fears and worries and um, also the many things that are happening in their lives. So many people don't have work. So many people are losing their insurance soon. Um, many are, are trying to figure out if they're gonna be able to eat. Um, and so it's trying to deal with many of those same social determinants of health that we deal with already, but amplified about 20 times. Yeah, that's right. And so that, that's what's helping us trying to make decisions. Yeah, it's a tough situation, isn't it? Um, you know, we've been talking about various urological malignancies and we know that in, in things like prostate cancer and small renal masses it's okay to wait you know you can reassure these patients and say come back in six months with an ultrasound or we'll keep an eye on your PSA but urothelial cancer is different it's unique in that it's it's often not okay to wait um, and especially in, not just in these patients who have confirmed muscle invasive bladder cancers but what about those patients who present with hematuria patients who have a confirmed bladder mass on ultrasound or CT these patients need some kind of, uh, of action to diagnose them. Yeah, so in many of those, we are proceeding with transurethral resections, especially for those patients who are symptomatic or are suspected of having high-grade disease. Um, for that, our anesthesiologist, and, and you guys might do this a little bit more in Australia than here, but um, we don't use spinal very often, but we have now. 
Um, so the TRBTs that I've done have been under spinal to avoid any kind of intubation or that kind of a risk. Right. And, um, and that's, that's been great because no one's got to wear the N95 then in that situation because yeah. no one's getting intubated. Yeah. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of those under spinal, but, uh, but I agree, it's hard to figure out, well, then do I re-resect or do I just start BCG? What's the, the lower risk? And it does seem to change every day as things change about um, what's going on with the tempo, what's going on in your city or state, what's going on with testing, what's going on with the science of what's happening with COVID. It seems like New England Journal of Medicine has a new issue dedicated to it with all kinds of uh, new information to um, rapidly process what, honestly, what information you're getting from Twitter yeah. um, versus those guidelines that are, are put out by some of our larger organizations, which have already changed in a week um, from when they were written. And so some of it's, it's, a, it's a moving target and it's, it's usually a daily meeting, huddle, decision-making process and figuring out what we think is the right thing to do. Yeah challenging time and and it's particularly challenging for bladder cancer I think because this is sort of a double hit for urethelial cancer you know in the recent BCG shortage especially we've had to change a lot of guidelines and policies and you know especially for those people who have um uh, high grade uh, sort of superficial disease you know with the with the young people with the aggressive types we've been pushing them a little more towards hysterectomy and that's going to need to change now too yeah for sure we we um when we did look at our lists of patients getting intravesical therapy, it was it was interesting because the majority of the patients are getting induction and maintenance, but that's partially because of the shortage, mm. because that's all who was getting BCG anyways, yeah. um, or intravesical therapy anyways, for the most part, aside from some intermediate risk patients getting chemotherapy. Um, so those patients are proceeding uh, as is. For us, because our BCG is given in our infusion center, which is running already with um, with a nursing staff and complement, meaning we don't have to bring in any extra nurses into our clinic, which is almost pretty much shut down. Um, that is still holding as is in terms of patients getting BCG. They're already the ones prioritized getting it um, based on based on their high risk features because of the shortage. Yeah. And so that is one thing. One thing that we have been doing though, is we have been using CX bladder monitor um, as a way of patients not having to come in for cystoscopy. So in patients who are six months after their initial diagnosis or nine months after their recurrent diagnosis, they're a candidate to have a home test Yeah. because the company has launched a home test. We started a pilot about a month before the pandemic hit um, and we ramped it up pretty quickly when it looked like many patients, we didn't know, do we bring, do I do my 17 patient cystoscopy clinic? Um, and the, the answer to that is no, yeah. <laughs> because the amount of people and traffic that creates is, is, um, is not okay during yeah. this shelter in place order. And so when we looked at it, we were able to take probably, um, uh, I think I, 15 patients, I was able to have them get the home test. Right. And the home test basically tells you um, it's a 97% negative predictive value on whether you can just skip that cystoscopy and reschedule in three months or six months based on your surveillance schedule, uh, or whether that person should be prioritized to having a cystoscopy because something might be happening in the bladder. 
Yeah. Um, so we've utilized that to reduce our cystoscopy volume quite a bit. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, the role of biomarkers in this setting because there's been so much debate about this uh, even before the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, we, we all know that none of them have truly been validated for routine use in, in the management or follow-up of bladder cancer, but, you know, they, they probably increasingly have a role now. Are you trying any others apart from CX bladder? It, currently, that is the only thing available for home tests. Um, and so because the kit gets mailed to their house, and they give their urine sample inverted or given instructions on how to do it and just put it right back into the mail. Um, it's the one that we've really been um, uh, leaning on uh, for patients right now. Yeah. Seema, I was just wondering that, you know, we were recently chatting with Ben Chalikin, uh from the UK and he was telling us mm-hmm. this, these 80-year-olds, elderly patients who have muscle invasive bladder cancer, who have other comorbidities, they're not really considering doing surgery in these people because if they came in and they they developed some consequences of COVID it would be highly unlikely that they would survive but surely these patients would have their own concerns how do you manage that how do you manage these patient concerns especially those people who've been who are having their surgery deferred or cancelled so I think it still goes back to what your estimation of the cancer biology is right not all t2s are created equal um there are those that are 10 centimeters and, and, and are likely to become a problem a lot sooner and are likely to be a bigger risk than, than getting COVID um, or getting, uh, the, the, uh, getting any kind of um, infection or complication from with relation to the pandemic. However, a, a like one and a half centimeter T2 tumor in an 80-year-old patient that you're pretty sure you resected completely away, could that wait a little bit? Probably. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I know that there's some estimation error there for sure. We do know that muscle invasive bladder cancer that's gone untreated from many different registries and and um, uh, data sources. You know, usually, the natural history is metastasis within 12 to 18 months, and then death soon after. Um, and so the question is, is how, how do we balance that with what we would normally do with the patient? If we feel like somebody is okay enough to tolerate a cystectomy and they have a larger mass or tumor, I would say that I might um, talk about sheltering in place. Um, I might talk about, you know, maybe that's someone you prioritize for pre-op testing and say, okay, if you don't have it, I think we can safely bring you in to our cancer hospital, which is separated from our COVID hospital. And with a reasonable risk benefit ratio, get you through surgery, could consider chemo radiation. Is that any better um, with the multiple appointments every day? There's no intubation, which is great, um, but there's immunosuppression and and daily visit, what is worse? And I guess it would depend really on what the situation is. If you are in New York, I, I wouldn't go anywhere near a, a hospital right now. And I don't think any hospital would be able to take care of you yeah. um, from that aspect. And so in that case, uh, it, it likely is fairly safe to defer surgery in an asymptomatic patient with a small mass. I mean, that's a, it's a different situation than um, in a place where you where it's not, everything's not okay, but maybe things are under a little more control that you have a little bit of um, uh, leeway uh, to decide in terms of timing. A lot of things to consider and it really depends on where you are and what the situation locally is. 
Um, ben, have you noticed a change in the referral pattern um, to you for bladder cancer? Yeah, uh, not as yet. I think we're a little early days here in Australia, but I do yeah. know that having spoken to um, my colleagues who are general practitioners, that they're not seeing the same patient population that they were seeing, um, you know, in years past. You know, the, the number of routine sort of appointments coming in um, with, with cons- patient concerns has changed dramatically. It's really more an upper respiratory tract infection type visits they're seeing. Having said that, I think any patient in the community who has hematuria for the first time is going to be pretty concerned. Yeah. And I, d- I don't expect there to be a change in the the patient presentation with bladder cancer because of that. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed the same, Seema. Uh, I, I, we haven't really seen seen a change. Um, I don't know if there's going to be like a like a lead time change, yeah. meaning mm-hmm. that what we're seeing now is what was referred a month ago or a few weeks ago versus what's coming in now. I don't know if people, how, how much people are afraid of going in into the physician, into the doctors, but I would say most people have moved to telehealth. So access, um, granted, if you have a phone or a computer and uh, in your first language is English is, is improved. Um, I would say for some patients who don't have internet, don't really have um, access to cell phones or, or um, some have landlines. I have a few patients who don't. Um, they have to go somewhere to get uh, access to be able to call someone. Or those who need interpreters. Um, mm-hmm. And interpreters. With Zoom, the great thing is you can dial in an interpreter into your visit. Yeah. Uh, we have that ability. And so that's been great. But um, when, you, when you're doing a telephone visit, um, you can call an interpreter and then call the patient, but there's definitely things that, that get lost sometimes in, in translation when you can't see someone's face. Yeah, um, I think that's been a lot more challenging and more difficult. Very interesting to hear your perspective on this, Ema, because, I mean, like Ben said, we're not quite at that point yet, um, and hopefully hopefully we won't get there. But um, with bladder cancer, it's always challenging, isn't it? And there's, there's information, like you said, is changing every day, and you really have to take into account every factor, uh, and especially those patient-related factors, which is so important. Seema, can I ask you about clinical trials? So um, Melbourne and San Francisco are actually quite similar in terms of curve and so on at the moment Uh, and Mm -hmm. so we're really in preparatory mode you know surge hasn't come and there's all sorts of optimism but we're still disaster planning but um, one of the early uh, victims if you like is that we can't open new trials and even existing trials we have to be very careful about Um, uh, we've certainly seen an impact on that here locally can I ask you uh, and Ben here is our director of GU clinical trials so he's, he's all over this but what's happening at UCSF and then we'll ask Ben to make a comment so uh, we're seeing a similar situation in that all non what's considered non-essential clinical trial activity has ceased and many people are work from home um, and that decree or order is in place till I think the most recent date was May 6th or 7th. Um, and so much of our clinical trial staff are at home unless there is a, a, a clinical trial essential to patient care. So. I would say there are some trials that we, we were looking at trying to open up in the next few months. Those are going to be on hold. Um, what you were sort of what you were sort of saying, the current trials that are going on now that are essential 
um, are still going on now, but they're working on ways of um, minimizing patient contact. Um, do you really need to get the LFTs to monitor X, Y, and Z? Or can you defer those? And I think some of the guidance from the NCI and NIH is allowing for, for the, those kind of judgments to be made without um, punitive effects. And But yes, that has become a, a, a definite victim of, of the pandemic is um, progress in terms of research. It sounds like our approaches are, are very similar to the trials. You know, it's, it's disappointing. We had some very exciting trials where it's going to open and we've had to put them on hold for the time being. Yeah. Uh, Seema, I think we're sort of nearing the end of our podcast. That was really amazing to hear from you. And, and obviously, you're very busy um, dealing with all of this. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And that's all we have time for on uh, GUCast uh, today. Thanks again uh, very much to uh, Professor Seema Porton from UCSF and, of course, to Dr. Ben Tran uh, from our clinical trials team, medical oncologist here at Peter Mac, for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please do subscribe. You can search GUCast in your favourite um, podcast listening app. Uh, and do, of course, get in touch if you have any suggestions uh, for topics you would like us to uh, cover. Um, and uh, we'll be back again very soon. Bye from all of us. 